Welcome to Protecting Your Assets, the show about protecting people, property, and most importantly, protecting your ass. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano, and I'd like you to join me for a fast-paced and often fiery discussion about security issues with my co-host, Brian the Angry Man Claimant. Whether we're piercing the veil of security, talking your duty of care, or raving about the latest technology, we'll share our thoughts on the issues, the trends that are impacting security today and into the future. So grab a coffee and join us for our latest podcast. And don't forget to like and follow us on our sponsor's website, brianclayman.com. And now let's talk about protecting your assets. Hello and welcome to Protecting Your Assets. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano Cedroni. With me is Brian the Angry Man Clayman. As always, uh, today's episode, we're going to be talking about emergency management. We've talked about that on previous episodes, but this episode is going to be extra special. We're going to have with us a proven veteran uh, with all the credentials uh, on how to do it right. And we're going to share some of those insights and experiences with you today. Uh, Superintendent, now retired Superintendent Bill Needles, is a 40-year veteran of the Toronto Police Service and a well-known and respected emergency management and public safety professional. During his career, he moved through up, moved up through the various ranks and was ultimately responsible for the Emergency Management and Public Order Unit, where he had oversight of the service's emergency management, critical infrastructure, search management, and special events planning functions. These included specialized teams such as the Mounted Unit, uh, the CBRNE unit or chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear and explosives uh, elements or threats, uh, the explosives disposal unit, the public order unit, and the heavy urban search and rescue team, also known as HUSAR, uh, for those in the business, would be more recognizable to you. Uh, Bill's knowledge, experience, and leadership skills have defined him as one of Canada's leading experts in emergency management. He has served as an incident commander in numerous operational responses, including the 2008 Sunrise Propane Explosion, and many of you remember that, the 2009 Tamil demonstrations that impacted downtown, uh, the 2012 Elliott Lake Mall collapse, very much in the news, the 2013 ice storms, and numerous floods that have happened over the years. Well, that's quite a resume, Bill. Um, Bill has also served as the operations chief for both the 2010 G8 and G20 Summit and the 2015 Pan Am Games. As a founding member of the Provincial Incident Management System, uh, uh, or IMS, Steering Committee, Bill is a strong advocate for the use of incident management systems in and, and throughout the country. Um, so welcome, Bill. Uh, excited for this uh, for this interview uh, because I'm tired of talking to Brian and, and having to educate him over and over again. But, Thank you, sir. <laughs> So our, we start our, our podcast with a quick uh, intro as to what is keeping you up at night. And I'm going to turn it over to Brian for his usual rant on probably COVID or President Dupas. But what's keeping you up these days, Brian? Well, first of all, just welcome, Bill. Great to have Bill with us today. He truly is an expert. He wrote the book. So it should be an interesting uh, session. Keep me up at night. Well, I guess still on the same themes, uh, but I guess focusing more on Canada with our political situation, the COVID situation. Two things I wanted to talk about. One is the rollout, the vaccine rollout or the kerfuffle or the lack of a rollout. That's How about occurring. disaster? Is that better? Disaster. disaster. You could say disaster. <laughs> and you talk about pivot. You know, many of us had to pivot when COVID started and going into the office every day and our normal routines. I know we as a consulting firm had to determine how are we going to serve our customers if we can't get out to see them. We pivoted rather successfully, and a lot of other people, I think, pivoted successfully. I think the government basically sort of saw the success that we've enjoyed and other Canadians have enjoyed, and they decided to pivot. 
they're pivoting because they screwed up the vaccine rollout so terribly, they want to talk about gun control, how gun control is going to help uh, what's happening in our society today. So that we're no longer focused on the vaccine, we're focused on gun control. And I was going to go apoplectic and almost kill, uh, hit the cat yesterday, but I realized I love the cat, so I wasn't going to do that. But I was watching the news and that tragic shooting incident of that 14-year-old in the Jane of Finch area, and a really sad, sad story. And then the next news story is about what the federal government's doing to keep us safe. And what they're doing to keep us safe is to get rid of all the long guns and the legally held guns by good Canadians, people that respect the laws. That would have done nothing to stop that little girl from being shot. You know, Bill would know better than me, but it's my understanding that almost 99 to 100 percent of the shootings, certainly in this city, are not with long guns or automatic weapons, but with uh, with pistols and with revolvers. And this legislation has very little to nothing to do about it. And I will say I'm disappointed in our public safety minister, who one would think would know better and would do the right thing. And in my opinion, I think that we're not taking advantage of his vast amount of experience. This is just a stupid law. It's just political, and it's to take the pressure off the prime minister. And the second thing that's just driving me crazy is with COVID. I was listening to Jerry Agar today, who I I, I like, but I really uh, don't agree with many of his positions on COVID. And there was a caller that called up, and so typical of many callers, and he was saying, you know, this is ridiculous. You've crippled the economy. And I know I see on the monitor here my friend Luciano is smiling. He's getting ready to attack me. But he says, you know, 99% of people that get COVID don't die. It's a death rate of 1%. And I've heard this said many, many times. And because of that, we have paralyzed the economy. We have paralyzed society. Well, I've got a newsflash. We have done such a bad job on messaging. The message should not have been that you're going to die from COVID. The message should have been that COVID will cause the collapse of the supply chain. And I, I, I recall an article I read, and I did some research before today's session in The Atlantic in uh, the end of the year, Dece- end of December. I'll just quote the first uh, paragraph. Since the beginning of the pandemic, public health experts have warned of one particular nightmare. It is possible, they said, for the number of COVID patients to exceed the capacity of hospitals to take care of them. Faced with the uh, surge of severely ill people, doctors and nurses will have to put beds in hallways, spend less time with patients, and ration health care. As a result, now this is about our American brothers, but the same holds true to us. Americans who need hospital beds for any other reasons, from an ingrown toenail to a heart attack to a broken leg, will struggle to find space. That's the issue with COVID. It's not the 1% death rate. It's the fact that you're going to have an ingrown toenail that's going to get infected that's going to cause you to stop smiling, Mr. Cedroni. I know this is audio, but I can see you on the monitor. Okay. Are you done? That's the problem. It's the collapse of the supply chain. And I'm done now. But do not get me angry in your response. I'm going to keep it short and simple because I'm going to leave it. I'm going to tie it right into Bill's uh, attendance here today. I think the, the biggest issue with the COVID disaster because it is a freaking disaster and you hit on it the messaging has been atrocious and i know bill talked about managing emergencies as opposed to just saying whatever the hell you want but i think the key in how they respond you view this as a health disaster 
And I view it as an economic disaster. And that's what I think the difference is. We both believe it's the real thing. We both know that people are dying from it. But you are definitely more concerned about the health issues and the impacts to the hospitals and things like that. And I'm more concerned about what it's doing to the country. That's that's the only difference. We're, we're but, essentially talking the same thing, though. But, Luke, you know, Bill's going to have to wait because this is important. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. But, Luke, here's the deal. Let, let me put it really clear. What would society be like if there were no hospitals? And no doctors, because that's the doomsday. If you've scenario. got nobody paying taxes, you've got no freaking doctors to freaking pay to go to the hospital. But, but that's <laughs> the issue, because the because public health and the economy are hand in hand. Anyways, though, I know that people want to listen to me. Yes, but you know, Bill's here will be polite. Yes, let's let Bill in. Bill, please. Change I have the to subject. leave, gentlemen. I have a hang to toenail hang. I got to go to the, the doctor and do some shopping for. <laughs> what? What's I think you're both you're both absolutely right on the problems there. It's both a health crisis and an economic crisis, and the juggling act that goes on between um, by all levels of government, from the city of Toronto crying poor to the province crying poor, and now this federal government spending every last piece of dollar that's on the shelf for the next 25 years. Everybody's uh, claiming it's one, it's the other, it's back and it's forth. It's both. I mean, obviously, it's 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 an emergency, and that's what we're here to talk about today. Sure. And so let's start with a, what's the difference between emergency management versus emergency response? And maybe that's the start of our discussion. You know, how would you define emergency management? Because that's really where your sweet spot is, right? Like managing the incident as opposed to actually going down there and well, putting up the fire department. You can't, you, you got to include emergency response within the definition of emergency management because, um, especially for, let's, let's say for my background, the emergency services. Their pride and joy is the response piece, right? And here it takes pretty much all three of them are, are secondary pieces to this. Maybe the paramedics are front and center a little bit more, but the police and the firefighters are secondary to this. And it's not a role that either one of them are totally great with it being a support piece. They're usually front and center being lead or, or vying for that position. So emergency management by definition is, is the entire piece that the entire sector, both public and private, should be looking into um, as you have the mitigation preparedness and de depending on which definition you want to get, the planning, uh, the response piece, which is the part that's been going on for a long time and the piece that I think has upset Brian a lot. What is the response piece and where does it fly and what's good today and what's good tomorrow or lockdowns today versus a party of five tomorrow versus a restaurant. Those are all response pieces to the recovery. And we're all aiming to get the recovery. And the vaccine part is hopefully the beginning of the recovery piece. And you're right. The whole system, the whole response piece has been designed, in my opinion, to protect the hospital system, right? Is they can't, we can't afford to have the hospitals with no beds, Brian, because they're all taken by COVID patients, uh, you know, heaven forbid, but there has to be the ability for cancer surgeries, for other surgeries to continue. And that's what I think the government has tried to do, especially the provinces who are, you know, more or less in charge of that response piece. The provinces are trying to make that work and juggling that ball. So you figure in emergency management, you have your emergency operations center supporting your sites. So your provinces in theory and IMS theory are your sites for all of these pandemics and 
your your federal governments, your EOC, who are supposed to support the sites. And I think your EOC position, your federal government's piece, has been it's been showing to be very flawed from the PPE at the from the pre-planning piece of what they did to dismantle Health Canada up front to the PPE piece where they didn't have a stockpile and then shipped so much away and then we're trying to play catch up and we're in the world market and our federal government apparently thinks they're a lot better than they actually are. They're, they weren't making the same headway and fighting with other superior powers like the US, China, Britain, the UK, all those are, are, are bigger hitters than us. And now we're in the same boat with the vaccines at the other end. So when you put that into the emergency management space, the federal government has done a pretty weak job of supply, supplying and supporting the sites, which are the, the the provinces, which you could argue, and people do argue back and forth every day, whether they're doing a good job or not. Hey, Bill, Luke, if I could just jump in. Yeah. Bill, I've always uh, seen the difference between emergency management and emergency response uh, this way. That emergency management adopts an all hazards approach. They don't care what the incident is. It's just causing disruption and a threat to asset or people. And we have to manage the response, much like the coach of a football team or a hockey team or the conductor of the orchestra. Whereas emergency response is incident specific. So really, if you have two buckets, all hazards and incident specific, emergency management falls into all hazards. Instant specific would be the response. Would you agree with that? Or yeah, ever... to a certain degree, Brian. Yeah, for sure. Um, emergency management is that overarching strategy that needs to take place for the response. But the responders to any specific strategy or or event have to have a basic understanding of what they're doing to 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 do that. So, like, if you look at the three primary ones, the emergency services, obviously. You think the police have their specialties, the fire service has their specialties, and the paramedics have their specialties, and then they come together to perform what the public expects of them as a unified approach to to deal with whatever that emergency response is. Now, you're also talking about what is the area of who's responsible for planning, pre-planning, mitigation, and preparedness for all of those events, whether that belongs to the public sector or not, whether that belongs to the private sector or not. And I think right now, because of where the emergency services are, with being stretched to the limit on all degrees, you know, all of them are claiming to be short-staffed. All of them are claiming to be understaffed. You have political ramifications of defunding the police and taking the police budgets are too big. All of that cut back on the fire service. Paramedics, there's not enough of them. So they have that ability to respond to all of those, but it's stretched and it's not there. And I think I go back with you guys a while when I used to to lecture with you on other things. And I used to say, you know, the yo-yo 48, you're on your own for 48 hours. Now I think we've stretched that out to 72 pretty much. All the pre-planning, all the planning preparedness now are 72 hours because the emergency services from the public sector can't provide the private sector all of what they need. And and I think the private sector needs now to be that third, fourth pillar of emergency services in the security arm is the, the one that I'd be looking at to say to you guys, that's where the, the private sector has to uh, has to step up to it and enhance themselves a little bit. 
I like you talked about public expectation, and that's exactly what the, the discussion you're, you're you're having right now. The public, when I'm talking about public, is really the business owners. The expectations that they have of emergency services has always been naive, I think, and overstated. They think that you guys would ride in on your horses and save the day no matter what it was, whether it be a fire in the building or if it's just some homeless guy in the front. It was always a, a public resource problem, not theirs. Do you think that the government has done, and in government, I mean like government services as well, not just government, federal government. I'm talking about government in general, the public agencies. Have they done a good enough job communicating or do they want to communicate the need for that private sector to, to step up, to become more involved with emergency management. There's so many things that the private sector can bring to the table, but there's nobody there coordinating those discussions, at least not the, that we see. Bill, just following up on that, you know, years ago, you used to host, I think, one of the best symposiums in the country called the Emergency Management Symposium when you were with Toronto Police, and you invited a, a speaker from New York City from the Office of Emergency Management. And their model was rather unique, at least compared to Toronto, anyways, that the Office of Emergency Management, the City of New York, and we have one in Toronto as well, but they had real power. And the type A personality of all the services, police, fire, ambulance, and all the emergency services, sometimes get in the way. And what I sort of took from that speaker was that because you have a third-party manager that manages the response, it parked the egos or made it easier to park the egos. And it allowed to have someone just focus on the strategy and let the different services focus on the tactics. What do you think about that model? Because I don't think that's what we do in Toronto. Oh, no, not not at all, Brian. Um, you know what? I, I love the Office of Emergency Management. I have some some friends that actually work there, and, and I, I really respect the limited job they're able to do. I think they, they are understaffed, understrengthed, under-resourced. I do not believe they're in the right location. I just think that they they need to triple their size to start with and start looking at a whole pile of different things. I also have um, a little bit of a background to go back to when Toronto police were responsible for the emergency program in the city of Toronto. And we decided at that point, which was about 2000, that the emergency services should not be in charge of the Office of Emergency Management. While we go for a circle now, when we find the fire service has been put in charge, and I, I love Chief Peg, I was totally respect what the fire service does because I've done a lot of work with the fire service. But personally, I do not feel that the Office of Emergency Management should be have anything tied to the emergency services. They should be, in my opinion, directly a direct report to the deputy city manager within the structure of the city of Toronto. Mm -hmm. Therefore, has that authority to not be controlled, you know, by any emergency services to any degree. The city structure is different. Um, the levels of government, the whole tiering system of our governments are different. So it's hard to compare what they do. And I know in New York, there's, we had the discussions here with the emergency services um, because of, they have some disputes that have gone on between police and fire significantly over the years. They, they sat down where the Office of Emergency Management in New York sat them down and said, okay, a shooting, police are in charge. A fire structure, fire is in charge. A CBRNE event, what is that? Police in charge until determine no criminal element, then fire, right? The hazmat. So the, it's structured to who's in charge. In Toronto, that doesn't happen. And I, and I guess we've been fortunate that the work that I know I did when I was 
with Toronto Police was to bring in our incident command staff from fire and paramedics to work with our teams, our incident management teams, as we structured them to be part of it. So it's not like we're seeing meeting our incident commanders from the fire service and the paramedics for the first time. We've met, we've practiced, we've worked, we know what each other drinks in their coffee, and and we have that uh, relationship that works very well. I think right now, you know, where we go with that, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, that's obviously a political question that may need to be answered somewhere else down the road. But I still think there's more more work that needs to be done for collaboration. And it's getting tougher as the resources are stretched, stretched in. The budgets are going to be real tight over the next couple of years. And uh, the risk management that needs to go into it, back to your definition of emergency management versus emergency response, the risk management and the hires and all of that needs to be done for, for the public perspective from the Office of Emergency Management. They need to keep all of their emergency plan up to date and they have to have all the emergency support functions ready to go. And I, I don't know if they actually are because they just don't have the wherewithal to keep it up to date, right? And they need participation. I do believe that fire, paramedics, and police should be embedded in there to have that resource a planner or two or three from each of those services, they all need to be working together. And I don't think that's happening right now. Bill, is there an expectation based on what you just said, you know, budget challenges, resource challenges? I'm assuming, I, I think I know the answer. There is an expectation that the private sector is prepared as well, that the private sector has pulled up their pants, has taken ownerships. They have plans, detailed plans for their assets. And those plans are modeled on the IMS or ICS model so that when we come together on game day, we can work collectively. Is that a fair assumption? Because I will tell you, as a private sector person, that doesn't always exist. I agree. that, And we spoke about this, as you talked about a little bit earlier. They need to step up the game because of, because of the sheer fact that the emergency services are stretched thin, because of the fact that governments aren't there to support them as much as they may think they are. They need to be able to ascertain the risks of their, for their own companies, the risks for their clients that they provide security to, combine that together, put the emergency management spin on it, and quite frankly, they might, they might even take uh, what I might suggest is to elevate the level of training for security guards that are provided to different private sector companies. Like, let's say, were you, you know, um, down the downtown four big banks at the corner there. What's the security training for those guards or for those banks? Mm, I'm going to say basics because of the transient of that business, the turnover in that sector, and whatever else you want to talk. But I think if they put more emergency management training into the individual guards as they get hired, give them IMS 100, the supervisors 200. They'll give them some basic emergency management training so that they are aware of some of the risks, the hazards, the preparedness, the mitigation, understand what the clients, the building they're in, what's the fire hazards, what's all the, you know, where's the chemicals kept, where's the exits, where's this, where's that, and dealt with the emergency plans for those buildings, understood them, that if something went wrong in those buildings, the security component, the private security component would help the day because if unless that building itself is the primary target of whatever's going on in the downtown core, the police don't have the resources, the fire service does not, none of them 
can say, I'm going to send enough staff to this building down the street that's A, on fire or has had an attack or whatever the issue is, and also sends assets to deal with my building at the Four Corners where, no, they're not likely to show up. Luke, I'm sorry, I'm going to turn it to you for a second, but I've got to say this, you know, in the portfolio I managed, I was one of the buildings in the four tower, uh, four corners in the financial district. Luke was the other. Now, Bill, professionally, uh, which one, Luke's or mine, was better? <laughs> neither. Which one neither, was... because remember the conversation oh. we had when we talked about with your commercial real estate and financial group? And yeah. we sat there and we said, we want to have a, we want to have a, a full blown exercise. So I asked the four of you where you exited and three of you came out onto the same corner. Yes, and I said, quite right. frankly, how's that going to work, guys? Yeah. There's just 30,000 people on one corner. It's going to be tight. Yeah. And so we had to take a big step back. And those are the things you've got to work with yourself. You've got to work with your partners, your neighbors, your building across the street, around the corner. You've got to have all those BOMA groups. You've got to have all the BIAs, all the commercial real estate financial groups. They all got to be talking to each other. The safe groups, another good one, but they've got to get their emergency plans coordinated and collaboration and working together so that they can either help themselves and if they're not in a problem, help their neighbor. Because again, the, the emergency services may not be able to provide the level of service they want to have. Tell me about that, because all I hear, I'm traumatized by the sound of broken glass. That uh, plans sometimes do not work. But anyways, I digress. Oh, yeah. I, I, hey. I should have taken a picture I of I told your you face. to board the windows up. You <laughs> chose not this, to listen to me. This, you, also, this, you also told me there could be a lot of public order cops outside my front door. But again, that's another yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, were, they were just down the street. Yeah, at, at Luciano's building. Oh, no, no, not mine. I'm not at the time. I was at Seattle. Oh, <laughs> oh, they, they, quite frankly, we, we had our hands full that weekend. We yeah. talked about the G20, folks. Yeah. Continuing on that, Bill, you, you mentioned those groups, the SAFE group, the PATCOM, the CRE. Yeah. And, you know, th there's some good guys, good people there who did some good work and probably still some who are doing some good work. But I did see a shift in that, certainly when you left, to give you the highest kudos you had uh, a commitment to partnerships and engaging the community around you you didn't have a problem ordering if you had to your unit commanders of one of your units to come out and talk to us but uh, to be honest I, i've seen that change in the last few years it, it's become dreadful like you don't see that level of engagement and and i'm not saying that the guys you know your replacements are, are, are aren't as committed maybe they're not that that could be the reality but they've also got the priorities have changed the resources have changed the political environment has changed, but at the end of the day, you still need those partnerships to happen. How do we get back there? If you don't agree with me, and that's a different discussion, but I don't think that, that there are anymore. Well, let's look. Let's look at it from the bottom end up, then, Luke. Let's let's just go back to the groups you spoke about and the commitment that they have. I'm not. I, I'm not going to say that the police have vacated what they need to do, um, but maybe maybe it has changed since I left. But uh, my commitment was not that I wasn't there to steal the thunder of the local unit commander. I know you had Dave McCormick on last time, and Dave and I worked famously together, and we never either went separately to meetings that were of that nature. Obviously, Dave went to certain things that I, he wouldn't invite me to because it wasn't along the emergency management portfolio. But if it was, he'd call me or I'd call him and make sure that we were working together and our people were working together so that all the plans and all the uh, the directions were 
were together. Yeah. So Toronto Police was kind of saying the same thing, not at the local level one thing, and at the corporate level, which I represented, a different thing because that's dumb. People just look at look away. So we had to work that together, and then trying to interact with those local groups. Be credible. Give them something they can hang on to. Help them walk them through to at least realize what you guys have spoke about here is that some of the private sector corporations had a too high of a level of expectation from the public sector response piece, which yeah. which were the three emergency services did. And we couldn't be everything to all people. Even I know Brian slagged my former boss before, but he was probably one of the, you know, the first chief that always used the line, we can't do this alone, right? And that's even more so now. Uh, the police, the emergency services can't do it alone. They need the help from the private sector. They need the help from that second tier policing level, the security, private security, and all of the security components that make that up, whether it be physical whether it be cyber, whether it be guards, whether it be all the electronics that go with all that, that all is part and parcel to the package that now the I think the public, the private sector needs to step the game up. Brian, you're Bill, speechless? Yeah, well, no, no. I've taken it all <laughs> That's in. That's first. I know. You know, yeah. it's interesting because the three of us, and actually more that aren't on this call, but we have a lot of history with Bill, and we go back many, many years. And I wanted to change focus a little bit and talk about some of the things that Bill's been involved in and get his thoughts. And one thing that comes to mind is the G20, which was probably a pivotal time in my career and where I learned a lot about partnerships and emergency management. And Bill, just your recollection of the G20 and some of the challenges you faced, but starting from the planning phase to actual game day, some of the failures that occurred or some of the failures i'll use the word challenges that occurred challenges challenges yeah no you're right how partnerships sort of save the day at the end of the day can you talk a little bit about that i can or are you able to maybe you're not uh, i know well, I, I certainly am, i'm certainly able to i'm not bound by anything now i'm i'm no longer a law enforcement officer and i, I certainly won't get into any of the, the the classified information that i may or may not have but uh, i'll tell you from minute one uh, when a good friend of ours, Superintendent Hugh Ferguson, we both got called down to a meeting at the, down the exhibition grounds uh, uh, six months before the G8 was supposed to happen up in Huntsville. And we went, oh, this can't be good. What's going on? So Friday night, uh, five o'clock to the exhibition grounds, and we're, we're hearing from the RCMP that, okay, it's now a no longer just a G8. It's a G20 but more likely a G34, right? There, there was 34 countries at that point in time that had already agreed upon coming to uh, to Toronto. Uh, the G8 summit was, G7 or 8 was still going up up north, but the rest of them were meeting here for the weekend. So that was the start of uh, a long six months of hard work. Um, the challenge, the biggest challenge I faced from minute one was when they said put a plan together. So I worked with, the, I, I was lucky enough that we were right across, they parked the G20 planning team in the old Toronto Police College at Finch and Brimley, and my office was right there at the corner at 4610, and it was a bonus to be right beside them. And, and I'll give uh, Tom Russell, uh, who was the planning lead for the team, he was an incredible man, nothing but utmost respect for Tom, I seconded one of my sergeants, my public order sergeant over there, and, well, 
we were together pretty much for the next six months. The biggest challenge was when I put my plan together on what I thought might be a starting point. I, I have a term in emergency management. You have a plan. It's like a baby. It exposes itself out the back end and needs to be changed right away, right? Yeah. You know, it, it, like it's it's good till the first contact and it's yeah. no good. So uh, my my plan was I needed 24 public order sections. That was my number. We we barely made 15, and uh, so I knew that uh, if things were and when they went sideways, I was challenged. I haven't spoke too many times. I I kind of refused to sort of go do the circuit after to, to give the rendition of, because people might think I'm blaming somebody or blaming somebody else. There was no blame here. It was just that was all that was available politically to to make it happen through across the country for one reason or another. There was some that could, some that wanted to come, some that sent part teams, some that sent seven members, some sent whatever they could. But, you know, we, there just wasn't that many public order assets in this country to deal with what I what I thought was required and at post end if people had said if you had the twenty four sections I would have had Brian, you would have had that public order response in front of your building as they were coming down there. But unfortunately every public order asset that I had as a public order commander, the worst day of your the worst hour of your deployment is when you've deployed all of your assets. And yes. I had and I had deployed every one of my assets because they uh, the the intelligence that day was fantastic. It told me that I needed to be ready because they were coming to disrupt the summit. And the objectives of the summit were, um, you know, that was our number one objective. My my main objective given to me from Hugh Ferguson, who was the incident commander, was to maintain the integrity of the fence. So that was my objective until it wasn't. And there was a time in there that it wasn't. But they came at us. They shot ball bearings. They threw sticks. They did everything they had. And those in the black block dress came for fight. And um, because they weren't the only ones, we, we talk about yellow, red, and black protesters. The yellows were the ones that did their march and went back up to Queen's Park. The red decided to help the black by staying back and making my, my troops engaged on every intersection from York Street over to Spadina and south. They filtered down to Richmond Street, and when they met the public order piece there to say no more, we blocked them, and then they, they flanked me on the outside, and I didn't have enough, so I had 100 on the east and 100 mobile on the west. I had to put them on the street to protect the fence. Mm -hmm. Done. I put I just sit back. I can remember this in a day. Once I, once I ordered them there, I sat back in my chair, threw my hands up, said, I'm done, because that's what happened. And that's where things went awry. The black block couldn't break ours, so they decided plan B was to tear apart the city. They did it. And, uh, but, but I still would say, if, I, if someone asked me before this thing started, no citizen was hurt seriously, no police officer was hurt or killed, no, uh, the, the summit went on. There was damage, yes. There was police cars burned, yes. And there was some people's rights may have been infringed for some periods of time, but not at that time. I still put my hand up and say that's a success. And for them to come after my chief that way, for what what I say now was a was wrong. Because, and this is the first time I'm going to say this one, when you corral 
a bunch of high-priced media people got got corralled on Sunday, you're going to fight a losing battle for a long time. And that's what it was. And police can't fight back. You know, I, I've got to say, hindsight is twenty twenty, But no one had hindsight. And that's I correct. think the men and women of the Toronto Police do not did not get the credit they deserve. They did an incredible job for the reasons you said just a few seconds ago. And I something I tell colleagues and friends all the time when they sort of armchair quarterback how uh, the police and the private sector security community operated that day. Just consider this. When the Olympics occurs every four years, they have four years to plan. The G20, we had, correct me if I'm wrong, what, less than six months, Bill? Yeah. And because if you recall, and I know you recall, if our listeners recall, Parliament was prorogued. That means that it wasn't official till about three months before. And what that meant was there was no budget allocated. So all these resources that had to work full time on planning were not available. The police took the, the hit and the blame, and, and they should, and they're responsible for their actions. But this was a big, big operations, and I think it, the Toronto Police and, and the leadership and the rank and file did an incredible job. And I think we, as a private sector security community, grew closer to the Toronto Police as a result. And again, I want to acknowledge publicly the incredible work they did, and in, in you particular, and your friendship and partnership. But I want to I want to also give you what other part of that question you asked me was, what was the best thing that happened? Um, with the private sector. And I'll tell you, we met several times. I met with you guys. I met with several different community groups downtown. And the most positive thing that happened was we pre-planned, we reworked it. You guys took the ball by the bull by the horn. And we had a plan to shut the path down. When I said shut it down, it was shut tighter than a drum in five minutes. Yeah. I don't think I, I would say, and and the police didn't do a thing. The police were engaged. I just said, I don't want them. I can't afford them to be chasing. We can't chase them in the path. Far too many risks down there. Far too many, much damage. Far too many avenues. We can't. We it would be a joke if they got down in there. You guys, you guys orchestrated that and shut the path down in five minutes. Unbelievable cooperation. Unbelievable planning on the private sector security piece. Unbelievable cooperation and collaboration. Well, that's you know that that's what's lacking now. I think now. Well, you, Luke and I talked about that in our last podcast, and it seems to ebb and flow. I mean, you know, a lot of the progress that was made seems to have lost traction, and we're sort of always reinventing ourselves, which is unfortunate. But I'll tell you, one of the challenges that we found when we put together a plan for the path was how hard can it be to lock to, to lock a building. Well, for starters, no one in the city knew how many doors led into the path. Right. There was no master key to the path. Well, there, and nobody the, owns the path. Yeah, nobody exactly. owns the path. The private sector does, but er, no one owns well, that. The, there's still a lot of pieces that the city of mm-hmm. Toronto owns, too. So it's yeah. it's a conglomerate of who owns what, where, and how, and how do you access that, and how do you then, like you say, shut it down. The coordination required was immense, uh, more than any of us realized. But again, what uh, was crystal clear to me was the importance of partnership, the importance of plan. And to steal uh, your thunder, Bill, which you say all the time whenever you lecture, the time to get to know your partner and exchange the business card is not during the riot, not during the emergency. 
we got to go for coffee before get to know each other. Not only know, but understand, like, and respect. And unless you do that, it's not going to work. And that's the key. Understand, uh, well, I don't necessarily like you, but i got to <laughs> understand and respect you because I have to understand what your needs are as a private sector company, what your needs are as a private sector security arm, what your needs are as a corporation, and, and then I have to respect that uh, as well. And I get to like you as well a little bit, like Luce. <laughs> so so we, we continue that. You're absolutely right. It needs to be something that's ongoing, and you have to deal in that, not just the emergency services piece. This is where the emergency management comes out. You need to start talking about how can we prevent, maybe, but mitigate, prepare for when it does happen, and mitigate the problems as they do happen. And then if we get to that full force response, how that's going to look, how you as a private sector security arm or the private sector company will assist the emergency services coming in. And I'll tell you one thing right now. When an emergency services comes running through the front door of police, fire, and EMS, if there's not somebody at the front door meeting them in one of those green vests that says incident commander on it, they'll assume that they have no training whatsoever, and they will take over command of that building and do what they need to do. But if they meet someone that's got some IMS training, some formal emergency management understanding to say, Oh, there's the guy, guy or girl I want to go talk to, and they'll get a full other a briefing right then and there, and maybe a lot of hoopla could be pres- preserved and, and mm-hmm. stopped. But then it, they also need to understand and respect the recovery piece from the private sector. The recovery piece of the private sector is mammoth because they need to get back to work. You, you need to report to your boss, who needs to report to the stakeholders or the CEO or the or whoever. And they're going to say, okay, how long are we out of business for? And how long will we have to take to replace all those windows? And can we can we operate with all those windows broken and blah, 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 blah. So that's where understanding the whole emergency management cycle becomes key. And if, if you don't understand how that all ebb and flows, you're lost. Well, just to answer uh, uh, or to add how long, four months. It took four months to repair yeah, the windows you from overseas, didn't you? From overseas, from China, yeah. actually. And apparently they were custom made. They were like, I, I think it was $200,000 of paint. And uh, after they were produced, one of them broke. They, they, on they the probably ship. listen to them too right now. <laughs> well, <laughs> China, they got- no, well, I remember Luciano, we went for a coffee and I was just telling him the challenges we're having recovering. And he said, he's a very deep thinker. Why don't you go to Costco? <laughs> I had to explain to him, you can't get these windows at Costco. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just thought of an uh, incident that, uh, as Bill was talking, if you remember the vault fight, uh, vault explosion uh, in front of the RBC Bank a few years ago. Yes. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and Pathcom was activated for that, and the security guards went down there. They started uh, securing the area. and. Now, I don't remember who said what because it's going back a few years, and it really doesn't matter. It's just points to illustrate the importance of having that, that partnership ongoing as opposed to just letting it, presuming that people know what it's about. And we had an incident. The, the incident was basically, you know, the explosion happened. So security is trying to understand what they need to do, and they had, I think it was fire telling them to lock down the path, and they just said path. They didn't say that section of the path. And... The security being on the ball, in my opinion, actually relayed that concern back to the PATHCOM, who I think was David Salstener or Michael Clark. I can't remember who was running it that yep. day. They actually called police 
to confirm that they wanted the path locked down. All 26 and, miles. All 26 yeah, miles of it, right. exactly. exactly. And they really but spoke I, to I that misunderstanding, was, right? They really didn't know what that meant. Yeah, we got the call because I had uh, rolled our, our, our mobile command post down in front of it. And I was working with Dave Marks uh, in the command post. Dave was the the ETF commander that day, right? Uh, mm -hmm. At that point, so he was dealing with the the pointy end of the stick. From the was there or not any need for the tactical response that that was there? So he was dealing with that, and I was dealing with the the rest of the issues around it. I remember, no, we don't need the whole path path <laughs> shut down. If, if someone's telling me that there's an area that they would like shut down, maybe they should come back through us. And, and again, that's the problem. The fire, there was no fire commander with me there. So I don't know who was making that call. And that's usually the issue, right? And there's an issue that may be elevated from one emergency services perspective. But for the fire service, that's not to the same level. They're just there to you know, stand by if there's a problem. Uh, it's the same, same for paramedics if someone were to get, you know, hurt. But that's a definite frontline policing response that no decision like that should be made by any of the other services that come should come through to the police. Well, and, and that just shows the value of the partnership and the training. Because it just so, so happens the security leaders that day, I think it was either Mike Colby, Salt, and Shane Belden, not really sure, but they're all uh, IMS trained. They've all mm -hmm. gone through the training, and they're also seasoned, and they realize that this command, this order they got. How did got, I ever it's, pass you? Uh, what's that? How did I ever pass you through? Well, no, because I'm at the executive leadership level. They all work it for me. I, they were getting me coffee at the time, actually. But but anyways, it, it just shows the importance of for, uh, for being trained and for having the relationships. Because kudos, and I don't know which one it was, said, hey, this order doesn't sound right, and we're going to validate that. Because that wouldn't always happen. Often the security people, if they weren't trained, if we didn't have the partnerships, would do whatever the policeman said to do or the fireman right. said to do. And the consequences would have been completely different. And there's the another big, big void, Brian, uh, in the emergency management world. How do company A, company B, or company Z get training? I know you guys came to us uh, from the emergency services, and we did a lot of it through G20 and some of the other events that came up. But on a general, how, do, how does a company get IMS trained? Uh, right now, I don't think there's the ability for the police service, at least, to give that training as they did before. So how do you do that? Private sector training, there is there is that ability. But again, that's going to uh, obviously be a, certainly an expenditure of a, of a company. I think it, that pays off in the end. That will pay off for their client base in the end, will pay off in the recovery piece for their clients down the end and mitigation, all of those things. You know, private sector companies, especially the security arm, like I said, they get trained at IMS, they'll provide a much better product to the clients. Exactly on that point, Bill, there is an op that's the opportunity for the private sector to come forward. And, and we, we hosted a lot of things. I don't think the private sector should expect the police to come in and do things. And I don't want to say for free, because there's always a cost. It costs time, it costs whatever. They could be doing other things. But there was always a role that the private sector could, could put forward, hosting the events. We had the big training session for PathCom. Yeah. We, we did a lot of good things, but it was always spearheaded by private sector guys who were willing to take the step forward, understand its importance, and then come to the police and say, you know, this is what we want to do. And, well, that's you know, where 
another organization we were both all involved in was TAPS. Yeah. Toronto yeah. Association of Police yeah. and Private Security. That was the governing body that oversaw that relationship, that brought that together. The TAPS board, which included the police on it, yeah. uh, which included high-level members and representatives of the private security arm in the downtown core, mostly, but not necessarily all. But those relationships were the was the one that we we started off and made those connections and that collaboration work, setting up and planning those kinds of events. Luch. And I and I don't think Taps is it it became kind of dependent on technology, mm-hmm. and then the cost became prohibitive. I think that it should be it should still be there. But if there's no technology, there's still email and a phone that can yeah. go around. And I, I, I get that the privacy part and all of this and the certain certain sectors couldn't communicate information. But I think there's ways to do that. And yeah. and TAPS was the best way to do that. And I know um, I still I still talk to Kim Derry uh, about it once in a while. I, I, I do business business with Kim and uh, it still comes up in our conversations. And we both still agree that it's. It's something that the downtown core needs to put in place, whether BOMA starts it up again or the commercial real estate guys start it up again or something. I think, I'm not sure, but I I believe it's maybe passed on in another life. Well, I'm afraid you might be right. You know, uh, we, uh, you need leaders. You need visionary leaders and people willing to take charge. Because all you got to see is follow me on in charge and people will follow you. It just seems we're going through a period of time now, and I'm not going to critique the public sector, but certainly in the private sector where there's been a transition of leadership, there's a change of guard. And I think certainly in the private sector, they're still trying to figure out, well, who's the next emerging leaders type thing. And I, I suspect the same thing might be happening in policing circles. So we're in this period right now where we're trying to reinvent ourselves. And again, it's sort of disappointing because I think that in the city of Toronto, we had so much to be proud of in what we accomplished with partners such as yourself and other great police leaders and security leaders, and that just seems to have lost momentum. It will come back, but it's, it's just a It's ebb and flow, and as you said, Brian, it's leadership, and right now policing is under attack. Yeah. may not be the right word, but under very serious scrutiny across the board for whatever they do. Um, you've got a relatively new leader in Peel, a relatively new leader in York. You have an interim chief at both Toronto and Durham. So until all of that experience flows up, new chiefs are appointed and they they get their mandates going and everything starts to flow, this may be one of the things that, uh, unless some leader steps up and decides to take the bull by the horn, uh, and that could come either from the private sector or the public sector, uh, they, quite frankly, I would love to see this come out of the Office of Emergency Management take that bull by the horn and run with that because they have a private sector uh, portfolio as well that they've been working with in conjunction with, we started with Toronto Police, right? So they have that. They still have some of the the infrastructure programs that we started with them that's still going, that I know OEM still working towards. So it's it's I think OEM would be a good one to, to take that bull by the horn and go with it in lieu of any vacuums that may or may not for one reason or another been created by by policing by emergency services generally it's not just the not just the policing component but right now um and going forward with the budget and the budget crunches that are going to happen in the next three to five years 
this is going to be somebody, and I think that this is a good chance for the private sector to step step up. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I agree also, and and I think it as always, Brian. We've talked about it many times. It comes back to the leadership and the uh, the vision of those who are leading the those units and those companies, those times, those uh, security teams at the time. And that's another discussion. We, we've, we've had plenty of debates over the training and competency and professionalism of the security yes, uh, industry. Know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, right. And, and since you've started the podcast. <laughs> so, Brian, I'm going to turn it over to you, Brian, for summing it up. Well, it, you know, I'm speechless. <laughs> that's it don't, don't give him another chance Luke <laughs> but something just came to my mind <laughs> you know Bill Needles really is a consummate professional and not only is he one of the most knowledgeable and talented emergency managers and public order people in the country if not North America he's just a great guy and I think the secret to success is there's talent out there you've got to bring the talent together and the stakeholders together you've got to park the egos and I just comes to memory after the g20 i went on the speaking circuit a little bit and i remember i was with the staff superintendent tom russell in ottawa i believe it's the Canadian police college and we were talking about how the private sector and the public sector came together to uh, plan for the g20 and i had a slide powerpoint slide and the slide really showed a group of guys about five or six guys and girls sitting around the table in an irish pub with some guinness in front of them and the caption on the slide is this is how you create lasting, effective partnerships. And the point I was trying to make is it's not enough for the chief or the VP of security to say you will play with the others, but there's got to be that trust and the confidence that starts with a pint of beer or a cup of coffee. And Bill, I take my hat off to you. You were an incredible ambassador to the Toronto police. You opened up all sorts of doors beyond just MPO and the command that you work, and we need more of that to understand the partnerships. Dave McCormick said when he got down to 52 division, he never realized the importance of the partnerships. He never realized that there was a skill set that he could leverage to make him a better police leader. So I just want to thank you, Bill, because uh, a lot of the great successes we enjoy in the city uh, have your, uh, have you to thank. But Brian, that goes back to the mutual respect that both had for each other was you guys always liked to get me because you figured I could give you something that from the police side of the house, and I always wanted you because there was something I wanted to get from you. So it was a matter of providing an opportunity for both sides to help each other, to give to each other, to provide for each other, and receive from each other. Not, not I'm going to go down and see what claiming what he's got. He's a private sector guy. He's got lots of money. I can steal whatever I want from him. No, uh, you know, you know, real fast in the game that you didn't have any more resources than I did, yeah. and mine were covered bare every year we you know the police budget was was not lucrative like everyone seems to think you had to be efficient in what you did and i felt that was an efficiency for toronto police was to to partner with all uh, any private sector that we could we could at that point i i thought it was because we were friends my god you were using you me. haven't bought me a guinness in over a year <laughs> yeah. yeah well we've had covid for a year and i'll buy you two when this so? is over I can I can use that line. Oh, <laughs> oh my God! I'm gonna re show Brian what summarize means because he's forgotten <laughs> what that. You're supposed to keep it short and sweet. <laughs> okay, so let's end it now. <laughs> no, but I just wanted to uh, thank Bill as well. Uh, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Always great conversations. You're a good friend. You're a good uh, ambassador of uh, the business that you used to be in. 
um, and hopefully you're enjoying retirement and that we'll be able oh, to get I'm, on the green. I'm busy. I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> yeah. pretty busy these days, so that's, that's right. okay. Yep, but to your point, uh, yeah, Bill does do the emergency uh, management uh, consulting on the site, um, and he's available on LinkedIn if you want to get in touch with him. Bill Neils, it's easy to track down, or give uh, Brian and I a call. We'll, we'll put you in touch with him. Uh, he'll it's, tell it's you the... It's NEA. I'm not that sharp, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for us, folks. We'll, uh, we'll look forward to our next podcast, and we'll talk to you then. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you. That concludes this podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and will join us in a couple of weeks for our latest episode. Please remember to like and follow us on our sponsor's webpage, brianclayman.com, where you can leave us your comments and suggest topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening, and don't forget to protect your assets. (laughs) 